As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. This is Histories of the Unexpected. He's the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. And he's Professor of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is Professor James Daybell. And we are your hosts for Histories of the Unexpected. Each week we discuss a surprising subject oozing with unexpected historical significance. And this week, it's perfume. Which for me, Sam, is all about the history of smell. It's smell as a way of evoking remembrance of the past. Ooh, very good. And um, for me, it's all about squid beaks. Squid beaks. Which is an amazing sentence, which I never thought I'd be able to say. It's also about the plague, the Reformation and the history of body odour. Oh, good. Well, if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes. Subscribe to the podcast and tell all of your friends. We're on Twitter. You can follow me at Dr Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. We are proud to be part of the excellent History Hit Network, home of Dan Snow's History Hit and other great shows coming soon. And you can find out more about what we've got planned in the forthcoming months, show notes, video clips, photos of everything we discuss and much, much more at historyhit.com forward slash unexpected. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 24 of Histories of the Unexpected, where we will be audio googling through history, exploring the history of things that you didn't even know had a significant story to tell, like warts, hats or scabs. And we'll be scabs. <laughs> and we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how simply everything has a history and crucially how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, that the history of the trunk is all to do with memory? The elephant's trunk. The <laughs> the box. Oh, the, the box. box. Well, elephants box. never forget. Or, or, or to do with trees, but then again, that's another another kind of trunk. And that the itch is all to do with the history of infidelity and practical jokes, Ooh. the itching powder. Yes, and wool, I'd say, cotton, things yes. like that. That's a yes. wonderful one. The man sitting opposite me is the jester of journals. It's Professor James Daybell. And the man sitting opposite me is the guardian of generations. <laughs> it is Dr Sam Willis. Together we will be piloting you on this uncharted and frankly highly dangerous flight into the past. Each week one of us takes the lead and this week it's my turn. OK, Sam, what have you got for us this week? I've got a lovely one this week. OK. Perfume. Perfume. Mmm. Mm. Well, <laughs> where do we go from there? As you, as you can smell, I, I'm, I'm beautifully perfumed this <laughs> yes, morning. You are. You're aromatic. Uh, you very, very aromatic. Like cedar wood, isn't it? Le for men. <laughs> OK. And that's important, the gendering, the gendering of perfume. Where do I go with the history of perfume? OK, um, 
The history of perfume for me is all about the history of smell. Mm-hmm. And it's about the it's about the connections between smell and memory. So it's oh, very smell, good. smell and history. If I asked you to think about what are your earliest memories connected to smell, or when you when you when you smell something nowadays, yeah. does it take you back to a past time? I have an appalling long-term memory. Right. Um, so I really am struggling here. But Which is great for a historian. <laughs> <laughs> very good short-term, very yes. bad long-term. Yes. I would say distinctive smells are going to be... I think there was some kind of weird polish they used on the floors at my school when I was about 10. I'm shutting my eyes here, trying to go back and think about it. It was very distinctive. Mm. I think the loo smelled pretty horrible there. Happy memories, happy smells would be... Something to do with the sea, something to do with family holidays in Cornwall, seaweed, rock pools, the kind of the fresh air that you get on the clifftops in Cornwall that was, that's so kind of unique mm, and it, mm. it smells fresh, it smells lovely in a wonderful kind of maritime way. So, mm. yes, that brings me back to, I don't know, 10, age 10? Right, the smell of the pub. You know, when, when the smell of the pub that, you know, there's a sense that you get when you walk into a... yes. A pub. Yeah. Fresh mown grass. True bread. L- bread. Lavender always takes me back to Provence. Oh. Um, yeah. And for years, I couldn't eat yogurts. Right. <laughs> because when I was a young boy and I was on holiday in Cornwall, in St Ives of all places, I had a natural yogurt. And, and afterwards, I think I'd been swimming in the sea and had picked something up and was violently ill yeah. just after having had a yogurt. So the connection was between... There was a physical connection between the smell of the yoghurt and me vomiting that meant that I couldn't touch natural yoghurt for a decade, probably. So, I mean, smells a, sort of a massively powerful, powerful thing, It's a it? massive... And, and there, has been, there has been research done recently connecting that sort of olfactory sort of sense to, you know, the way in which we, the way in which we think about memories of the past. There's that famous Proust quote, you know, which talks about the smell as a way of evoking... The remembrance of the past. If I Google it quickly here, there we are. But when from a long distance past nothing subsists, after the people are dead, after the things are broken and scattered, taste and smell alone, more fragile but more enduring, more unsubstantial, more persistent, more faithful, remain poised a long time, like souls remembering, waiting, hoping, amid the ruins of all the rest, and bear unflinchingly in the tiny and almost impalpable drop of their essence the vast structure of recollection. Mm. But how, how do we capture the history of smell? You know, this is something that's so intangible. You know, a smell is something, it's a sense that is out there and is so difficult to sort of to find a sort of historical residue. But so perfume, though, I mean, you're talking about smells more generally. Perfume is yeah. very much, that's the, the, for me, that's a, I think about perfume as a as a construct. Right. Perfume is something that is made, that is invented by man. So for me, it's to do with recipes. So you're thinking about literal making of perfume. Yes, rather than right. general aroma. Right, right, right. So literally okay. the making okay. of perfume, which is where I'm going with it. And one of the things that's really struck me is how closely perfume is linked with culture and with how many and varied those influences are so there are some smells for example that the romans might have enjoyed as an artificial perfume as a a constructed perfume but which we would now find utterly disgusting in the same way that they ate strange food that we would find disgusting and so this kind of man-made construction 
is the sort of the, the core bit of how I was interested in it. And also the kind of the, the magic of it, the sort of the secrecy of it. So if yeah. you came up with a recipe for perfume that was very successful and that then could be sold very expensively, that becomes a very, very important secret thing that would be locked away, that would yeah. be protected. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so you, you have kind of competition to achieve the yeah. finest yeah. of things. So that's essentially where I'm going to go with perfume. I'm going to go in terms of finding and blending okay. extraordinary objects. Right. The most extraordinary of them all, extraordinaryist. Is that a word? The, 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 most, the, the extraordinary, most extraordinary. The most it can be. It can be. <laughs> the most extraordinary of them all is ambergris. Ambergris. So this, for me, the history of perfume is all to do with the history of whaling. Ah. So, for those of you who don't know what ambergris is, here I've got a, I've got a picture of it. Let me just show you this picture of it. <laughs> Look at that! Oh my! That looks like a gigantic haggis. <laughs> it Literally, does. we're talking about a a sort of meter wide, maybe fifty centimeters high blob of goo. Yeah, um, completely solid. Now, this stuff washes up on beaches. Here's a very happy chap who's found some there. Goodness me. It's incredibly expensive. It's known as floating gold. And it's expensive because ambergris is, and has been for centuries, one of the most important ingredients in the most finely considered sort of uh, famous perfumes. Yes. It's it stinks though, doesn't it? It stinks. Where it, okay, you've got to work out where it comes from. This is an interesting thing. Some people think it's whale vomit, right? But it's not whale vomit. It comes from sperm whales, right? Um, and other people say it's whale poo, and it's not whale poo either. It's kind of a mixture. So what happens is that whales eat squids, right, by the ton, and there are various bits of squids that whales can't digest. There's the beak. Right. Um, there's this thing called the pen, which is a kind of quill-like internal organ, and they're, they're the eye lenses of squids. Okay. So the whales digest everything <laughs> in one of their four stomachs. Right. This gooiness that cannot be digested, sort of the hardness, gets passed through the body. Every now and again, the whale vomits it up. Okay. That yeah. is not ambergris. Right. Ambergris is something that then gets passed through somehow the internal organs of the whale. And it's also with a fault in the stomachs. So there's, um, I read the phrase leaky sphincter, which is pretty gross, or, <laughs> okay. a, or a leaky valve. Right. And it basically means that these beaks, lenses and internal organs get passed through the digestive system of the whale and then they get stuck as the whale passes its faeces out and it all builds up. Now, one of two things happen. Either the whale passes this lump of gooey, pooey um, squid beaks, or it literally blocks up the whale's bum and then causes an internal rupture and it kills the whale. It kills the whale, right. Now, what's really important about this is it only happens in 1% of sperm whales. So it is pretty rare. It's almost unimaginably rare. Yes, yes. And then, so the whale dies, you then have to have all of these carnivores feasting on the whale for it to be Ah, eaten up. It then floats and then it drifts around in the sea for decades 
which gives it this kind of mature thing. So the, the whole process of angry, it's part physical, part sort of geographic and part chemical. But the key thing is it needs to mature in the sea. So the whale gets eaten, the ambergris gets left, it floats about, and then eventually it washes up in a fisherman's net or on shore. And it is then used to make perfume. So what I love about this is this kind of contrast between the utter horrible stink of, I don't know, the thought of squid beaks and squid lenses and whale poo, and then and, something and floating around in the sea for so long. And high quality perfume. And high quality perfume. But the link is there, and it's very, very well known. People have been trying to describe the smell of pure ambergris for, for centuries. Mm. Um, there's a wonderful description in 1844, someone really struggling with it, said that it smelt something resembling old cow dung. And another one from 1895 described its odour as being like the blending of new-mown hay, the damp, woodsy fragrance of a fern copse, and the faintest possible perfume of the violet. Other people say it smells... Very of, romantic. Other people say it smells of churches, which is a slightly weird thing. Or even Brazil nuts. It's unique, it's exceptionally rare, and it's yeah. one of the reasons that people hunted sperm yeah. whales. Huh. So it's all to do with the history of whaling, which I'll go and talk about later. But Goodness me. How about that? Ambergris is a commodity that we find used in the early modern period. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, you know, it is, perfumers would have used it as a fixative. It has the kind of property that would allow the smell, the scent to last much longer, which is why they use it almost as an industrial agent. And there's a wonderful book, one of the best books I've read in recent years, amusingly titled The Ephemeral History of Perfume mm -hmm. by the wonderful um, literary scholar Holly Duggan which is all about scent and scents in early modern England. And what and she looks at perfume in a much sort of broader uh, sense than, than simply perfume. And it is about the history of smell. And I think there's a sense in which the history of perfume is about the history of the senses. You know, and I think we should do podcasts about touch, sight, oh, yeah, taste, all of those kinds of things. But it's thinking about it in a sort of more rounded way. But back to this sort of, back to this, um, the the... The idea of ambergris. It's used in all sorts of sort of domestic perfume recipes. And I've got a I've got a little recipe here, which is from which is from a recipe of how to perfume gloves excellently, which is in a household manual uh, for early modern 17th century housewives. Uh, it's Gervais Markham's The English Housewife, where he basically puts together a series of instructions for how women in the home could come up with these wonderful sort of perfumes that they use in various ways. What's interesting here is that perfume is, is not connected to the sort of cosmetics counter that we have later on when we think about the sort of high-end French perfumes, but it, it, it's domestic. It's also connected to the apothecary. Mm -hmm. So it's connected to medical, which is your idea of, of sort of medical treatises. But I just read you this, I think this is wonderful, this sort of description of how to perfume gloves. To perfume gloves excellently, take the oil of sweet almonds, oil of nutmegs, oil of benjamin, each a dram of ambergris, one grain. So obviously, a, you know, very, very rare uh, property. Fat musket or musk, two grains. Mix them all together and grind them upon a painter's stone and then anoint the gloves therewith. Yet before you anoint them, 
let them be dampishly moistened with damask rose water. Hmm. It makes you wonder whether people are actually enjoying the smell of this or whether it is a demonstration of wealth because you can uh, get access yeah, to Ambry yeah, and you can get access yeah, to all the oil of yeah, Benjamin, whoever Benjamin yeah, is, yeah, watch out. Yeah. You know, whether you like the smells, actually, <laughs> it yeah. becomes slightly secondary, doesn't it? If someone, yeah. if you can create a smell that everyone goes, what on earth Wouldn't is that? Yeah, you can say, yeah. well, actually, it's to do with whale vomit and the oil of almonds. Yeah. Do you not have a perfumier who mixes that for you in Paris? And you say, well, we've yeah. got one in London, and off you go. Yeah. Yeah, so it's to do with I mean, status, isn't it? If you it? think about the court of Versailles as well, you know, and the you know the use of perfume there, and perfume was a was connected to status. I mean, it was also because you'd got you'd got a court thronging with people in the this these elaborate clothes, and they must have stunk. Mm. So it's about covering up that smell. But what you have is the invention of particular smells. Louis the Fourteenth wanted you know a different smell in a in a different room. Mm. The fountains were were part of smells. There was one room that 20 years after the occupant had left it still stank of her perfume. Mm. It's extraordinary. And it, it's also, perfume and smell like that, it's transient. Yeah. So, so you can make yeah. a perfume, you open the bottle, you put a couple of dabs on, and then it'll smell for it, but then it's gone. It's, yeah. I think it's actually, it's, it's probably intricately linked to kind of capturing the moment and also yeah. something, not exactly mystical, but something ephemeral, something, something very difficult to, to grasp and grab hold of. And I wonder whether that's the attraction of using ambergris, because if you think about the sperm whale is one of the rarest myth, mythical, myth, mystical monsters of the deep. Yeah. And then the ambergris is, it's like that squared or quadruple. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the rarest yeah. of the rarest of the rarest. Yeah. And so I think the smell is one part of it, but it's the mystical journey from the whale to maturing at sea, that it is, is all part of it. So mm. it's, it's something you can't see. It's something lots of people haven't been able to see before. Yeah. And there's a specific link there. It's not, it's not a physical thing. Mm. Taking that in a different route, how do we reconstruct the history of smell? Mm. You know, because as you say, this is something that exists at the time. If we're thinking about sort of the way in which we might reconstruct the history of events, we do that through you know, traditional categories of document, but how do we how do we go about and write a history of perfume mm. in that way? Uh, through recipes, of course, you know, and maybe reconstructing. Yeah. We, we should get hold of some ambergris and, you know... <laughs> I will go and look at Exmouth. <laughs> go, go and look at Exmouth. Where else can we find it? Um, <laughs> Charmouth. Charmouth, with fossils. We should do fossils. Fossils, yes. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting question. I mean, historic recipes do survive. Yeah. Absolutely, and... Um, as do descriptions of people's perfume and, and and the smells that followed other people around. But it's definitely a difficult one. Often, I think there are unpleasant smells are remarked upon rather than yeah. everyday smells. Yeah. So you've got this kind of classic problem in history of exclusivity being quite hard to yeah. pin down sometimes. Yeah. Oh, sorry, uh, or the opposite. You only have exclusive smells. You don't have the day-to-day -day smells because yeah. you don't know you yeah. don't know what what the kind of every man's perfume was. Yes. Well, it's, it's, I mean, it's, in a sense, it's the history of body odour mm. that we're moving towards. It, and, and it's also connected to washing and bathing. And for a long time, there's a, you know, there's a, a sort of distrust of water. You know, water is a contaminant and water is a carrier of, of disease. I think what's, what's interesting if we look at modern history is the way in which personal hygiene and the way in which you smell uh, has been addressed, particularly by 
you know, people looking at a history of advertising. And if you look at a history of, I don't know, antiperspirants mm. over the, you know, either either to to sort of cater to um, halitosis, bad breath, yeah. or to sort of, you know, so overly sweating. And that's all to do with the history of insecurity. It's people it, it's, playing on people's yeah, fears. Yeah, absolutely. The history of the history of advertising. A lot of these campaigns started off, you know, connected to, you know, they targeted women, mm. female consumers. So it was about what you would do is you would latch on to uh, female insecurities about about their own body image. I think one of the first adverts for an antiseptic breath wash by Listrin, I think that the tagline went often a bridesmaid but never a bride <laughs> and, you know Ooh. don't you don't use listerine oh. um, you know no, nobody likes you because your breath smells so and i think that in the 1930s the female customer base had sort of been you know had more or less been covered and they started onto male hygiene mm. you know and there are various sort of antiperspirants this also has to do with understanding how smell happens you know, and I suppose what we've got is a sort of is the way in which people have understood about how people sweat. Yes. Well, um, it, yes. Where smell comes. I mean, that's from. all to do with taste, it's isn't all, it? Yeah. So it's one of the reasons you you smell wine before you taste it. Yeah. Because you taste through your nose as, yeah. as much as anything. That's yeah. um, and that's all to do with medical knowledge, so yeah. scientific advancement. Do you know the history of the the brand Mum? No. Mum deodorant. No. So this is one of the sort of earliest commercial deodorants, which was developed in the late 19th century, 1888. It was dubbed Mum, which um, was as in keeping silent. Right. <laughs> so it's about mum's the word. So there was this sort of waxy cream that you'd put on that would hide your, your sort of body odour, but it basically left... I mean, it was terrible stuff. It left a sort of greasy residue all, all over the place. So. Yeah. But it's what, you know, that that really does go back to insecurities and fears. You're not going to tell anyone that you're using deodorant. Yeah. Mm. But, I mean, if we look at the history of deodorant, deodorising, you know, back in time, I mean, for centuries, millennia, people have tried to mask particular smells by putting on, you know, various scents. It'd be, I mean, interesting to have some kind of geographical smell map of the past. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure we could. I'm sure we could. It would be. It would be more than more than we can do here. But, uh, <laughs> but I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure we could. Some massive research project. Yes. Right? A smell yes. map of the past. That's yes. good. Well, wonderful. We've been. Two, I've got. I have no, so much. You always more. do this. I have so much more. You always do. Where this. could we go? The smell. Where can we go with the smell? Um, <laughs> smell and religion. Okay. Okay. Mm. So. Incense, yes, in churches. Smell is connected to the Reformation. Everything, everything, is connected to everything the is connected to. Okay, the take Reformation. me through that. But if we think about the burning of frankincense and myrrh, yes. incense in in church, this is an important part of Catholic ritual yep. and the late medieval church. It's about the smell of churches. It's about the power of smell to affect the senses. It's a way of connecting the sort of parishioners and the world to God, to the divine. So in a sense, what it's about, you know, if we think about the use of incense in the Old Testament, it, you know, when we think about the way in which it's connected to sacrifice, this, the incense, the sweet aroma of incense, in some ways symbolises the prayers of the people rising up to God. This is an important part of the sort of trappings of the church, which is attacked by the reformers. 
Mm. You know, because they see this as something that is too that is too mystical, but it still plays an important part in Catholic Mass today, and also High Church Anglican Mass. You know, as you see the priest coming around, and that's all to do with you know, spices and, and, and the reach of the church yeah. and wealth and yeah. travel and all sorts of yeah. things, isn't it? it? You know, you're demonstrating by setting fire to something and swinging it around a cathedral. Yeah, yeah, that you have access to this yeah. stuff. You yeah. have the long tentacles of yeah. religion. Yeah. And for many people, that would be a smell associated with religion and worship. But I've got a, I've got a quote here from Calvin, who was not in favour of incense. And this comes from his commentaries on John chapter 4. That we may not fall into this error, we ought always to be attentive to the present rule. Formerly, incense, candles, holy garments, an altar, vessels and ceremonies of this nature pleased God... And the reason was that nothing is more precious or acceptable to him than obedience. Now, since the coming of Christ, matters are entirely changed. We ought, therefore, to consider what he enjoins on us under the gospel, that we may not follow at random what the fathers observed under the law. For what was at that time a holy observation of the worship of God would now be a shocking sacrilege. <laughs> so, you know, it's bundled up with all kinds of sort of idolatrous to his mind, sort of superstitious practices. So the history of smell, and, and there's been a lot of really interesting work done on sense of smell and the way in which it's been connected to the history of religion and, and worship. Mm. Amazing. Amazing. I can also, I can also go with, and this is probably slightly more uh, mainstream, the plague. Okay, yes. Okay, ring a ring a roses, a pocket full of poses, a tissue, a tissue, we all fall down. down. Okay, which is all about the plague being thought of as something that was airborne. Yeah, those wonderful plague masks. Those wonderful, the, the, those wonderful plague masks, which I, ha I have a couple of images of them here. They're with the stretched noses, aren't they? The stretched noses. So we've got here the plague doctors in the 17th century, you know, when the protective clothing carrying pomander canes you know and pomanders would have been these sort of little receptacles objects that you would have put you know various sort of things in rosemary was a, a, a an important sort of commodity that people would have used to ward off the these smells that's interesting because it's an easily accessible it's a very easy it's a very English. it's a very easily accessible that, has, that is associated with all kinds of things including weddings. Yeah. So in the 17th century it would have been associated with weddings but it becomes We should do the history of herbs. We should definitely do the history of herbs. Yeah. I supervised a brilliant PhD uh, recently on the history of herbs. Oh. So so that would be right up my street. <laughs> but the thing is the way in which the way in which a particular smell changes connotations across time. Yes. So rosemary becomes associated with disease and death because it's related to the plague because it was seen as something that would, you know, that would protect you against the plague. Mm. So we've gone in all kinds of directions <laughs> with this. We have. From whales, yes. the sperm whale, yeah. to modern-day deodorant, female and male hygiene, the plague, the late medieval church. Advertising. I really enjoyed advertising. that. Advertising. Yeah. The history of fear and insecurity. And beachcombing. And beachcombing. So, everyone, you need to go beachcombing. I want you to go and find some ambergris take some photographs of it and then try and sell it. Do you sell it on eBay? I'm going to see if there's some on eBay. Yes. Wonder... Poison! We missed out poison! Oh, the perf perf perfume as poison. Perfumed gloves as poison. Well, we've you... done gloves before, haven't we? You, in perfume, podcast, you so. perfume a glove 
It would be poison. The poison would seep into somebody's hand. Good night, Vienna. Good night, Vienna. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, as always, you're the most important member of this podcast. Please get in touch with us with your stories of the history of perfume. And we'll put them up online and we will discuss them with you. Thank you very much for listening. Bye. Bye. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. If you enjoy this podcast and you like learning about the past, check out my latest venture. It's called History Masterclass, and it's a new type of historical event where you can actually learn in person from the best historians around today in unique and stunning historical locations. You can find out more at thehistorymasterclass.com and follow on Facebook and Twitter at thehistorymc.